On last week's program, we mentioned how we intended to see the documentary Dark Money, based on Jane Mayer's wonderful book. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, did not take place, although we do hope that based on our chatting it up, many of you did go check it out. We do want to verify that I have gotten some feedback on my complimentary review over the Alex Honnold movie, Free Solo. That comes from Mr. McMillan, who also liked it. Yours truly also failed to follow up on checking out the documentary Deceptive Practice uh, on uh, Ricky Jay. Although I didn't mention it on last week's program, I was struck by one little piece quoting from him in a different mini-documentary where he was talking about some of the newspapers he'd put out in the past with stories of magic and conjuring and stuff he thought was cool. And he summarized it by saying, oh, this is just a personal reflection of what interests me, that which appeared in his uh, newspaper. And I guess that's not a bad thing to have, for either for a newspaper or for a radio program or for a TV show. Let's talk a bit about the world of television. Wonderful piece by Alan Siegel in TheRinger.com referring to uh, the late Anthony Bourdain. The article was titled, Tony's Compass. The subheadline was, How the Crack Creative Team, behind the late Anthony Bourdain's TV show, helped turn him into a star and then came together to finish his story after his death. The article starts out noting that morning was just going to have to wait. Back in June, just days after Anthony Bourdain took his life, the crew of Parts Unknown mobilized. They didn't really have a choice. The CNN's Travelogue's profoundly beloved host was gone, and it was up to them to assemble the show's final season. Bourdain's creative team gathered at the Midtown Manhattan headquarters of his production partners, 0.0. ZPZ co-founder Lydia Tanaglia said, um, It was a really difficult time. It was helpful for people to focus their energy into finishing something that they had started. And they all said Tony would have enjoyed this, figuring out how to finish those shows without his narration. It was a puzzle. The pieces were there, but they had to be assembled. The last five episodes that featured all original material had been shot, but Bourdain had fully narrated only one. What the ZPZ staff realized, however, was that they were uniquely qualified to complete Bourdain's opus. Over the past two decades working alongside him, they'd watched Bourdain evolve from an irreverent, swashbuckling cook-writer into a mesmerizing, empathetic icon who formed an unparalleled bond with both interview subjects and viewers. And the article points out to understand how they managed to wrap up Bourdain's rich TV life, you have to go back to its humble beginnings. Lydia Tanaglia was first introduced to him via Kitchen Confidential, published in 2000. This book, aspects of which he disavowed last year for glorifying a culture that allowed the kind of grotesque behaviors we've been hearing about all too frequently, unquote, was both a memoir and a behind-the-scenes look at the restaurant industry. In his review, New York Times critic Thomas McNamee described Bourdain's style as a mix of Hunter S. Thompson, Iggy Pop, and Jonathan Swift. Tanagli enjoyed the book and heard that he was considering a follow-up, a cook's tour. By that time, she and her partner Chris Collins were working as shooter producers. One of their gigs was the TLC reality show Trauma, Life in the ER. Tanagli and Collins thought they needed to escape from what they referred to as blood and guts television. On a whim, Tanaglia phoned Bourdain at his brasserie, where he was executive chef. After introducing himself and explaining that she and Collins were producers, Tanaglia asked if he'd be interested in having a meeting. He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. While chatting with him at a bar, it became evident to Tanaglia he had no plan for a cook's tour. The idea of making a TV show 
intrigued him because he wanted to use the experience to collect fodder for the new book. They said it was probably an excuse for him to get out of the kitchen and for us to get out of the emergency room. They were impressed right off, evidently, by his ability to dip into an endless deep well of literature, film, and music knowledge. Collins said, He read more books than you. He's seen more movies than you. He's probably watched more television shows than you. Whether it was Joseph Conrad, Wong Kar Wai, David Bowie, or Keanu Reeves, he was always referencing something. They note that back at the turn of the millennium, a series starring Anthony Bourdain wasn't exactly an easy sell. But the Food Network did buy two seasons of the offbeat A Cook's Tour. So they jetted off to Japan and shot an episode that they said eh, did not go too well. But when he went to shoot in Vietnam, they said he was suddenly firing on all cylinders with all frames of reference. At the start of A Cook's Tour, people working on the show would write scratch narration and give it to Bourdain. For a short stretch, there was even an internal competition to see who could come up with stuff that lived up to what he might actually say. At some point, he understood, Collins said. This is a guide track. You, Tony, need to write. As time passed, Bourdain's pre-shoot preparation increased. He was writing ideas and lines before we even got there, Collins said. Anyway, in 2002 and 2003, the Food Network aired two seasons of A Cook's Tour. The channel wanted the show to continue, but sought to tighten up its scope by keeping Bourdain stateside, where he'd visit things like barbecues and tailgate parties. Bourdain had no interest in doing that. Tenegli and Collins recalled him asking if they thought there was a home for the series elsewhere. They pitched it to 12 networks, but the only offer came from A&E, which wanted to build a Kitchen Confidential-like reality show around Bourdain. It included no travel. They all agreed at zero point zero that uh, this probably was not a good idea. In October of 2004, they heard from the Travel Channel. They met with them, and the Travel Channel greenlighted three episodes of a globe-trotting show. In 2005, British TV executive Pat Young was hired as president and general manager of the Travel Channel. Early in his tenure, he checked in with the network's head of production, Bill Margol, who explained the plan for Bourdain. In April, Young watched the first five minutes of No Reservations pilot. He was apparently perplexed. It was shot in black and white. Bourdain was smoking, which meant they'd have to deal with standards and practices. He was asking himself, where are we going with this? But he was willing to take a risk. The Travel Channel needed a boost. After 9-11, travel had tanked. Some of their programming was now dedicated to things like the World Poker Tour. Young met Bourdain, and, well, he and his boss got along well. He knew that his new star was unlike anyone he'd ever met or managed. Young concluded very early that Tony had a very, very clear vision of his show in his head, in a way most talent don't. In July of 2005, No Reservations premiered. They noted that young people were talking about the show on internet message boards. In those days, No Reservations was strictly a travel and food show. Collins used to hear Bourdain say, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a guy to go off and tell those kinds of stories. But then in July of 2006, he shot an episode in Beirut, and during the filming, war between Israel and Hezbollah broke out. They filmed about 10 hours, but basically had to flee the country. The network decided they needed to turn this around quickly and get it on the air. Anthony Bourdain in Beirut aired on August 21, 2006, and earned the series its first Emmy Award nomination. From there, Bourdain took off. And for a while, the Travel Channel provided him with the platform that he desired. But as No Reservations blossomed into a hit show, some of its biggest internal supporters left the network. And at the tail end of an eight-season run, Bourdain also made 20 episodes of The Layover. Tanagli and Collins started hearing the same things they did before leaving the Food Network. 
Bourdain and his team were asked to make stripped-down, domestically shot episodes. According to Collins, the word from the executives was discouraging. It was a classic statement, and this is a sad statement. Quote, Our audience doesn't have a passport, unquote. Bourdain was not happy about making a smaller, safer show. But the Travel Channel was offering a two-year deal and no other networks were calling. Tanaglia recalled thinking, we're going to sign the contract because we have no recourse. But unbeknownst to them, there was a suitor. In 2012, CNN embarked upon an original series division. CNN executives asked the trio if they could hold off on signing a contract with the Travel Channel. And thus began Parts Unknown, which debuted on April 14, 2013. I'm sad to note that I did not see most of this last season's worth of episodes of Anthony Bourdain. I caught either the last show or the next to the last show where they were showing him in action being a bit of a jerk, pushing everybody around, being a bully, but determined to get the best out of uh, the situation and his crew. Staff noted that pushing the envelope became their war cry. Tony pushed us to push ourselves. He never wanted to do the same thing twice. By this point, Anthony Bourdain had become a celebrity that helped him book dozens of notable guests, including President Barack Obama, with whom he dined in Hanoi. The article notes that the way Bourdain disarmed the buttoned-up leader of the free world was no different than how he engaged a home cook on any continent. Bourdain always found a way to connect. Anyway, it's a fine article. I've just skimmed it. There's more to it in the printed page, as there always is in anything we ever talk about on this show. Anyway, that's why we always suggest to you that, you know, for the full effect of whatever you've heard us talk about, you may want to go to the original source. Now we're we're a non-commercial enterprise, so we're not telling you to go out and do that, but uh, we suggest that you may want to seriously consider it. Now we mentioned in that little uh, episode a a British television producer, and we're going to do it again in a slightly different context. The January 7th issue of The New Yorker has a wonderful piece by Patrick Raiden Keefe about Mark Burnett. We need to talk about Mark Burnett for a few minutes here. The article starts off noting that Expedition Robinson, a Swedish reality television program, premiered in the summer of 1997 and had a tantalizing premise. Sixteen strangers were deposited on a small island off the coast of Malaysia and forced to fend for themselves. To survive, they must cooperate, but they are also competing. Each week, a member of the ensemble is voted off the island, and the final contestant wins a grand prize. The show's title alluded to both Robinson Crusoe and the Swiss Family Robinson. But, notes the article by Patrick Raiden Keefe, a more, a more apt literary reference might have been Lord of the Flies. The first contestant who was kicked off was a young man named Senisa Savija. Upon returning to Sweden, he was morose. He complained to his wife that the show's editors would cut away the good things I did and make me look like a fool. Nine weeks before the show aired, he stepped in front of a speeding train. The producers dealt with the tragedy by suggesting that Savija's turmoil was unrelated to the series and by editing him virtually out of the show. The chief of the network that produced the program told the L.A. Times back in 2000, Expedition Robinson offered a potent cocktail of repulsion and attraction. You feel embarrassed watching it, but you couldn't stop. In 1998, a 38-year-old former British paratrooper named Mark Burnett was living in L.A. and he was producing television. Lord of the Flies was one of his favorite books, and after he heard about Expedition Robinson, he secured the rights to make an American version. Burnett had previously worked in sales and had a knack for branding. He renamed the show Survivor. The first season was set in Borneo, and from the moment it aired on CBS in 2000, 
Survivor was a ratings juggernaut. According to the network, 125 million Americans, more than a third of the population, tuned in for some portion of the season finale. I'm pleased to note I was not one of them, and neither was Edward McMillan. The catchphrase, delivered by the host Jeff Probst at the end of each elimination ceremony, the tribe has spoken, entered the lexicon. Barnett had been a marginal figure in Hollywood, but after this triumph, he too was rebranded as an oracle of spectacle. Les Moonves, then the chairman of CBS, recently outed, arranged for the delivery of a token of thanks, a champagne-colored Mercedes. To Burnett, the meaning of this gesture was unmistakable. I had arrived. The only question was what he might do next. A few years later, Burnett was in Brazil filming Survivor, the Amazon. His second marriage was falling apart, and he was staying in a corporate apartment with a girlfriend. One day, they were watching TV and happened across a BBC documentary series called Trouble at the Top about the corporate rat race. The girlfriend found the show boring and suggested changing the station, but Burnett was transfixed. He called his business partner in L.A. and said, I've got a new idea. Burnett would not discuss the concept over the phone. One of his rules for success was to always pitch in person. But he was certain the premise had the contours of a hit. Survivor in the city. Contestants competing for a corporate job. The urban jungle. What Burnett needed was someone to play the role of the heavyweight tycoon. Burnett, who tends to narrate stories from his own life in the bravura language of a Hollywood pitch, once said of the show, It's got to have a hook to it, right? They've got to be working for someone big and special and important. Cut to, notes the article, I rented the skating rink. In 2002, Burnett rented Woolman Rink in Central Park for a live broadcast of the season four finale of Survivor. The property was controlled by Donald Trump, who had obtained the lease to operate the rink in 1986 and had plastered his name on it. Before the segment started, Burnett addressed 1,500 spectators who had been corralled for the occasion and noticed Trump sitting with Melania Knaus, then his girlfriend, in the front row. Burnett prides himself on his ability to read the room, to side up the personalities in his audience, to suss out what they want, and then give it to them. I need to show respect to Mr. Trump, Burnett recounted in a 2013 speech. I said, welcome everybody to Trump, Woolman Skating Rink. The Trump Woolman Skating Rink is a fine facility built by Mr. Donald Trump. Thank you, Mr. Trump, because the Trump Woolman Skating Rink is the place we are tonight, and we love being at the Trump Woolman Skating Rink. Mr. Trump, 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 Trump. As Burnett told the story, he had scarcely got off stage before Trump was shaking his hand, proclaiming, You're a genius. Cut to June 2015. After starring in 14 seasons of the Apprentice, all executive produced by Burnett. Trump appeared in the gilded atrium of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue to announce he was running for president. Only somebody really rich, Trump declared, could take the brand of the United States and make it great again. He also made racist remarks about Mexicans, prompting NBC, which had broadcast The Apprentice, to fire him. Burnett, however, did not sever his relationship with his star. He and Trump had been equal partners in The Apprentice, and the show had made each of them hundreds of millions of dollars. They were close friends. The article notes that Donald Trump had been a celebrity since the 80s, his persona shaped by the best-selling book, The Art of the Deal. But his businesses had foundered, and by 2003 he'd become a garish figure of local interest, 
a punchline on page six. The apprentice mythologized him anew and on a much larger scale, turning him into an icon of American success. Oh, and by the way, Burnett has made many programs since The Apprentice, among them Shark Tank. In June of last year, he became the chairman of MGM Television, but his chief legacy is to have cast a serially bankrupt Carnival Barker in the role of a man who might plausibly become the leader of the free world. Catherine Walker, producer of the first five seasons of The Apprentice, told the author, I don't think any of us could have known what this would become. But Donald would not be president had it not been for that show. Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal, which falsely presented Trump as its primary author, told me that he feels some responsibility for facilitating Trump's imposture. But he said Mark Burnett's influence was vastly greater, adding The Apprentice was the biggest single factor in putting Trump in the national spotlight. Schwartz has publicly condemned Trump, describing him as the monster I helped to create. Burnett, by contrast, has refused to speak publicly about his relationship with the president or his curious but decisive role in American history. Anyway, the piece goes on to describe some of Burnett's background. He was a British paratrooper. He fought in the Falklands War. He came to America and evidently married up pretty well. And believe it or not, apparently uh, Mark and his second wife one day in in 1992, attended a seminar by the motivational speaker Tony Robbins called Unleash the Power Within. A good technique for realizing your goals, Robbins counsel, was to write down what you wanted most on index cards, then deposit them around your house as constant reminders. They report that Burnett's, <laughs> Burnett's wife wrote family on her index cards, and Mark wrote more money. article notes that on Survivor, the competitors were split into teams or tribes. In this arena, Burnett suggested viewers could glimpse the cruel essence of human nature. It was undeniably compelling to watch contestants of different ages, body types, and dispositions negotiate the primordial challenges of making fire, securing shelter, and foraging for food. At the same time, the scenario was extravagantly contrived. The castaways were shadowed by camera crews, and helicopters thundered around the island, gathering aerial shots. Moreover, the contestants had been selected for their charisma and their combustibility. It's all about casting, Burnett once observed. As a producer, my job is to make the choices in who to work with and put on camera. Skipping ahead a couple pages, the article notes that in The Apprentice, the show was built around a weekly series of business challenges. At the end of each episode, Donald Trump determined which competitor should be fired. But Jonathan Brown, an editor who worked with Burnett on the show, noted that Trump was frequently unprepared for these sessions and had little grasp of who had performed well. Sometimes a candidate distinguished herself during the contest only to get fired on a whim by Trump. When this happened, Brown said, the editors were often obliged to reverse engineer the episode, scouring hundreds of hours of footage to emphasize the few moments when the exemplary candidate might have slipped up in an attempt to assemble an artificial version of history in which Trump's shoot-from-the-hip decision-making made sense. During the making of The Apprentice... Burnett conceded that the stories were constructed in this way, saying, We know each week who's been fired, and therefore you're editing in reverse. Brown noted that President Trump's staff seems to have been similarly forced to learn the art of retroactive narration construction, adding, quote, I find it strangely validating to hear that they're doing the same thing in the White House, end quote. The piece notes that such sleight of hand 
in the industry is kind of standard for reality television. But the entire premise of The Apprentice was also something of a con. When Trump and Burnett told the story of their partnership, both suggested that Trump was initially wary of committing to a TV show because he was so busy running his flourishing real estate empire. During a 2004 panel at the Museum of Television and Radio in L.A., Trump claimed that, quote, every network, unquote, had tried to get him to do a reality show, but he wasn't interested. I don't want to have cameras all over my office dealing with contractors, politicians, mobsters, and everyone else I have to deal with in my business. You know, mobsters don't like, as they're talking to me, having cameras all over the room. It would play well on television, but it doesn't play well with them. The article notes that The Apprentice portrayed Trump not as a skeezy hustler who huddles with local mobsters, but as a plutocrat with impeccable business instincts and unparalleled wealth, a titan who always seems to be climbing out of helicopters or into limousines. Most of us knew he was fake, Brown told the author. He'd just gone through I don't know how many bankruptcies, but we made him out to be the most important person in the world. It was like making the court jester the king. Bill Pruitt, another producer, recalled, we walked through the offices and saw chipped furniture. We saw a crumbling empire at every turn. Our job was to make it seem otherwise. The piece notes Trump maximized his profits from the start. When the producers were searching for office space in which to stage the show, he vetoed every suggestion, then mentioned that he had an empty floor available in Trump Tower, which he could lease at a reasonable price. The article notes that after he became president, he offered a similar arrangement to the Secret Service. When the production staff tried to furnish the space, they found that local vendors, stiffed by Trump in the past, refused to do business with them. Ah, this is a great article. It goes on. More than 200,000 people applied for the 16 spots on season one. 200,000. And although the show's early years, the candidates were conspicuously credentialed and impressive. Officially, the grand prize was what the show described as the dream job of a lifetime. The unfathomable privilege of being mentored by Donald Trump while working as a junior executive at the Trump Organization. All the candidates paid lip service to the notion that Trump was a peerless businessman. But not all of them believed it. A standout contestant in season one was Kawami Jackson a young African-American man with an MBA from Harvard who had worked at Goldman Sachs. Jackson told me he did the show not out of any desire for Trump tutelage, but because he regarded the prospect of a nationally televised business competition a great platform for career advancement. At Goldman, I was in private wealth management, so Trump was not by any stretch the most financially successful person I'd ever met or managed, Jackson told me. He was quietly amused when other contestants swooned over Trump's deal-making prowess or his elevated tastes. When they exclaimed on tours of tacky Trump properties, Oh my God, this is so rich. This is like really rich. Fran Leibowitz once remarked that Trump is, quote, a poor person's idea of a rich person, unquote. Jackson was struck when the show aired by the extent to which Americans fell for the ruse. Main Street America saw all those glittery things, the helicopters, the gold-plated sinks, and saw the most successful person in the universe, he recalled. The people I knew in the world of high high finance understood that it was all a joke. All right, we got about five minutes left. I got about five minutes worth of article here, I think. The piece notes this is an oddly common refrain among people involved in The Apprentice that the show was camp, and the image of Trump as an avatar of prosperity was delivered with a wink. Somehow, this interpretation eluded the audience. Jonathan Brown marveled. People started taking it seriously. The piece asked, did Burnett believe what he was selling? 
Or was Trump another $2 t-shirt he pawned off for 18 He did that in his youth. It's difficult to say. One person who's collaborated with Burnett likened him to Harold Hill, the traveling fraudster in The Music Man, saying there's always an angle with Mark. It's all about selling. Burnett is fluent in the jargon of self-help, and he's published two memoirs, both written with Bill O'Reilly's Ghostwriter, which double on manuals on how to get rich. One of them, titled Jump In, Even If You Don't Know How to Swim, now reads like an inadvertent metaphor for the Trump presidency. Beast goes on to note that, like Trump, Burnett seemed to have both a jaundiced impression of the gullible essence of the American people and a brazen enthusiasm for how to exploit it. The piece also notes that at one occasion, Trump invited Burnett to dinner at his Trump Tower apartment. Burnett had anticipated an elegant meal, and according to an associate, concealed his surprise when Trump handed him a burger from McDonald's. The validity of this particular anecdote does seem to be bolstered by the fact, I don't know if you know, dear listener, that the Clemson collegiate champion football team was invited to the White House a few days back, and they were apparently surprised to find table after table, piled high with French fries and burgers from Burger King, Wendy's, and McDonald's. The football player's initial reaction was, is this a joke? And in a metaphorical way of looking at it, I suppose it is. But no, it's what you get fed when you go to dinner with Donald Trump. A burger. You know, if I read this this article uh, verbatim, it would take the entire hour. So we're, we've been skipping around, as we always do. But I just want to close uh, by noting that uh, it was Mark Burnett, as head of The Apprentice, uh, who uh, you've probably heard refusing to produce some of the outtakes from The Apprentice, in which Trump apparently uh, makes some disparaging remarks about everyone. Well, well, worse than his usual. It is believable that uh, whatever contracts you enter into as a reality star are are pretty ironclad. If people thought that things they said while they were being filmed might later turn up... uh, Elsewhere, well, there'd be no reality shows. Well, I, I think there'd be no reality shows. Maybe it wouldn't change anything. I don't know. Anyway, near the end of the piece, they quote a psychologist, um, Richard Levack, who consulted for Burnett on The Apprentice. He said, Mark has an idea for casting, and he cast Donald Trump. When the author asked Levack what kind of personality profile he might have prepared for Trump as a candidate for the show, he said he would, would have noted the energy, the impulsiveness, the inability to articulate a complete thought because he gets interrupted by emotion. So when he speaks, it's all adjectives. Great. Huge. Horrible. What made Trump so magnetic as a reality television star was his impulse to transgress, Levack continued. And it is the same quality that has made a captive audience of the world that somebody can become successful while also being that emotionally undisciplined. It's so macabre that you just have to watch it, and you keep waiting for the comeuppance, but it doesn't come. Anyway, that's, that's about it. The article was titled Winning by Patrick Radden Keefe from The New Yorker, January 7th. You might want to check it out in full. 45 seconds or so we have left, I would like to refer to the John C. Riley interview that was on Fresh Air this week. In particular, his reference to playing Oliver Hardy in the new movie Stan and Ollie. He noted how when they're trying to imitate Laurel and Hardy, he discovered how hard it was to follow in their footsteps. They would time their choreographed actions to themselves, 1001, 1002, 1003, and then do something. Kind of reminds me of the time when I think it was Conan O'Brien denounced Johnny Carson uh, for making it look so easy. I wasn't aware until I read the Anthony Lake piece in uh, The New Yorker that one of Oliver Hardy's admirers was no less 
than Marlon Brando, who said that what he liked best was Ollie doing those dead takes into the camera where he just shook his head. I think my single favorite Laurel and Hardy anecdote among many was the time I was in Bombay. This is some 30-odd years ago, and Mr. McWillan's distant cousin had set me up with a lovely local lass, and what did we do on our date? Well, we went and saw a Laurel and Hardy movie in Bombay. And yes, we both enjoyed it. How could you not? Well, for those of you born after 1996, the city I'm referring to is now known as Mumbai. That's about it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. And so we started out with Broadway legend Carol Channing and just now mentioned (laughs) the comparison of Donald Trump to Harold Hill. Mr. McMillan, we have to go out with something from The Music Man. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 